Father, we confess our love for you this morning. Because we know that your love for us is not in question. There's not a shadow of a doubt when we realize what you did on the cross. There's not a shadow of a doubt about your love for us. That's not a matter of concern or question today. But Father, our love for you, that's up and down and high and low. And Lord, we just want to say this morning, we love you because you first loved us. And out here, Lord, where um, what we have, what we possess, what we own, who we are back in Houston or wherever we live, those things are lost out here, Lord. And the truth is, when we woke up this morning, all we really had was you. And so we say with the singer, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. But give me Jesus. Because if we have you, that's enough for us, Lord. You are always more than enough for us. And I pray that you would settle that truth in our hearts this morning. As we study your word, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. God is good. All the time. Where are my Gad people at? Where are you at, Gad? Okay, I'm going to give you your good most of the time, okay? And I'm good some of the time, and some of us are only good like every once in a while, but God, He's good like all of the time. He is always, always good, and His Word is good. And it's good to be here with you. This is, I was thinking, this is my 15th year uh, to do this. In fact, when I first went to Camp Tallowood, the sixth graders were not born. Uh, some of the seventh graders were not born. I dedicated some of them to the Lord, held them up um, like I was Rafiki the monkey in the movie Lion King, and I'm holding the babies up, and we're thanking God for them, and I did that for them, and I baptized some of you, and um, it's just amazing to see your progress and the way you've grown. And the Christian life um, is not just one moment in time. I mean, when your parents dedicated you to the Lord, that was their commitment of, the, uh, of you to the Lord, to say, Lord, we want this child to belong to the Lord, but you had to own that for yourself. And so some of us were over here at one point ambivalent to God, and then, um, you know, we were a little bit apathetic, and then we sort of turned toward Him, and then we fell on our knees, and, and then we fell on our faces before Him, and then we rose up to give Him praise, and then there came a point when we started walking with Him. And I don't know where you are on this um, pilgrimage, but I know this, that just because you start well, um, is not enough. That the, the point of being a follower of Christ is not just starting well and then forgetting about it somewhere in the race. But in every race, um, to win the race, it's not the person who runs the first couple steps the fastest who wins. It's the person who finishes strong. And one of my favorite stories is captured in the movie Chariots of Fire. How many of you have seen that movie, Chariots of Fire? A few of you. It's the story of Eric Little uh, and a man named Harold Abrams. And um, they were two runners from the United Kingdom, from England. And Harold Abrams was a man who in the movie says, I have 10 seconds. When the gun sounds, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence in this world. For him, running was everything. And if he didn't run well, then he was worthless. But if he ran well, then he felt like he was somebody and it gave him a sense of value and meaning and purpose in his life. 
The other runner, Eric Little, had a very different perspective. In fact, um, he had grown up and wanted to be a missionary to China, and he had interrupted that for a while. And even some of his family members had said, you just need to go to China right now and forget about this whole Olympics thing. And he said, look, um, you know, God made me, and I love, Ga- I love God, but the truth is, he made me fast. And I feel God's pleasure when I run. And I think we've got a clip of him in the Olympics. It's interesting um, because um, he was supposed to run in the 100-meter dash, which is very different you know, from other races, but they were running it on a Sunday. And he said, I'm not running on a Sunday because Sunday belongs to the Lord. And that's my Sabbath, and I'm not going to. And they said, no, no, this is for your country. This is for the Olympic gold medal. And he's like, yeah, I'm not running on a Sunday. So the very race he went to run, he didn't run. And Harold Abrams got to run in his place, and Harold won the gold medal. And then they said later in the week, why don't you run the 400 meters? Now, if you're a 100-meter person, you understand the 400 meters is a different race. It's longer. It's harder in some ways to run. It's not just about how fast you are, but it's about how fast you can be for a longer time. It's one of the hardest races. Maybe the 800 is the hardest. I'm not sure. But um, this is him running the 400 meters in the 1924 Olympics. Yeah, that's him winning. Yeah, he was the one who crossed first. And what you see in that race is he ran kind of with his his head back. There's a great scene in that movie where um, he, he, um, he falls down. Somebody kind of bumps him and he, and he trips and he falls down and the other runners are running around the race and the people on the sidelines are taking bets and they're all betting and they thought he was going to win and now they're like, oh no, he's not going to win. And he stands up and he starts running and the other guy says, yeah, he's, he's going to win the race. And the guy, he's way behind. There's no way. He said, yeah, but he hasn't put his head back yet. And when he put his head back, it was kind of funny. It was like his body was out running his face or something. And he would put his head back and he would just start running as fast as he could. And, and one by one, he tracked down those runners. See his head back there. And uh, he beat everybody in that race. Uh, Eric Little knew what we need to know. That it's not just how well you start, but it's how well you finish that matters. And I want to empower you this morning from God's word to finish strongly. To finish what God has started in you. So would you open your Bibles with me this morning? We're coming to the fourth of the letters. We skipped over Smyrna uh, yesterday morning to get to Pergamum, and today we're in Thyatira. And I want to just share with you Revelation, not Revelations, right? Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And let's stand in reverence for our God and His Word today. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of of her ways. I will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, 
and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them in pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. So the longest of the seven letters is written to the smallest town. Thyatira is not a capital city. It's not Ephesus with all of its beauty and, and cultural uh, advantages. Uh, the Lumen Asia, Ephesus, this magnificent city. Thyatira is not that. In fact, if somebody were making a list of important cities in the ancient world, um, they probably wouldn't have put Thyatira on the list of the top seven it wasn't thought of as a great place. It wasn't wealthy. It wasn't famous. Its only claim to fame in the Bible is that, anybody know this? Lydia came from there. Lydia is Paul's first convert in Philippi, in what we would call Europe, uh, when he went over into Macedonia, the northern part of Greece. And it, it was famous because they manufactured the color um, purple fabric. And uh, they made this beautiful fabric that people in the, in the world used. But other than that, they didn't have any claim to fame. But there was a church there. And that's why Jesus, who's walking among the seven lampstands, walking among the seven churches, talking to the angels of the churches, giving a message to the pastors of the churches to communicate to the people, that's why Jesus goes to Thyatira. And so if you and I say, well, you know, I mean, who am I that God would care about me? Well, here's the deal. He cares about every one of us. And if Jesus comes to you this week, that tells you that he has a purpose for your life. He has some great reason for you and some purpose. And what, what he usually does in these letters, there's sort of a pattern. Here's the pattern. Usually, if he can find something good about the church, he'll commend them for that. So there's kind of a, a, a commendation where he says, I notice you're doing this really well. And then he will usually offer some correction. He'll say, and like in this one, it's nevertheless, or in the translation we saw yesterday, but... But I have this one thing against you, and then there's a correction. In this case, there's this, this teacher, a lady who's teaching in the church, and she's advocating immorality. She's advocating idolatry. And because she is, Jesus comes and says, yeah, that's not going to work. And I'm giving her time to stop that, but if she doesn't, she's going she's gonna to suffer for, for doing that, and everybody who follows is going to suffer. But, but there's some of you who aren't doing that, and so he, then he offers this, this counsel to them. He says, look, I'm not going to ask a lot from you, but hold on to what you have. You started well, and he says, you're even doing better than you were at the first. Now, hold on. You're almost to the finish line, so finish strong what you have started. And then the fourth thing that you often see in these letters is a promise. And the promise is, he says, I'm going to give you the morning star. You ever wake up early in the morning and see like there's one star in the sky? Probably not a star, probably the planet Venus, which is often called the, the morning star. But in Revelation, last chapter, 22, verse 16, Jesus tells us who the morning star is. He says, I am the morning star. So if he promises the church at Thyatira, I'm going to give you the morning star. He's not saying, and I'll give you the planet Venus. You can go hang out on Venus sometime. Um, no, what he's saying is, I'm giving you me. The reward 
for following Jesus all the way to the finish line is you get Jesus. Jesus is the great reward. He's, he's what we need. He's the one that we, we thirst for and long for. He's the answer for every need in our lives. And if we will follow him to the finish, we will discover progressively in our lives as we're on this Christian journey that Jesus becomes more and more to us until eventually we come to this place where we, we say that, that song I prayed in the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus. You can have everything else in the world. But give me Jesus. So look at his commendation to them and notice that the, the morning star, Jesus, empowers us to finish strong. So what he says to them is, um, I am the Son of God. Only time in the book of Revelation, Son of God, that expression. We, we see Jesus last night. He's the Lamb. He's the Lion. He's the morning star. We see that a couple of times. But here, Jesus says, I'm the Son of God. And what he's doing is establishing his authority. When he says, I have eyes that are burning like fire, that's not for aesthetic effect. What he's saying is, I see everything. There's nothing I don't see. It, it shows us the omniscience of God, that he knows everything. So when he says, I know your deeds, he's not saying, well, I heard about them from somebody else. No, he knows. One thing we know about Jesus is he knows us. And he's got these feet that are like burnished bronze because he's walking among the churches and it's a picture of his omnipotence, of his power. He's got all authority in heaven and earth. And at the end he says, and I want to share my authority with you. That's what I want to do. I want you to share in what I'm doing in the world. And he says, you're doing four things really, really well. He says, you've got love and you've got faith and you've got service like ministry and you've got perseverance. And if you look at the other churches we've looked at compared to Ephesus, they're working as hard as Ephesus is, but they're still in love with God. And that's a great thing. So they've still got that love. And compared to Smyrna, they're persevering just like Smyrna. And compared to, to Pergamum, when you look at, at Pergamum yesterday, um, Pergamum has that, that um, need for the, the truth as well. And they're sort of... Um, they, they, they're a little bit weak in the area of holding on to the truth. So he says, you got these four things going for you. And by the way, he says, you're doing, you're doing better now than you did it the first. And when I read that, I wondered, would Jesus say that to us? Remember when you first became a follower of Jesus? Maybe it was here. Maybe you were baptized here three years ago. And you were just head over heels in love with Jesus. And here's my question is, have you ever loved Jesus more than you do right now? Or would you say that you're, you're doing, you're getting better at this? What I want is, is Jesus to say to us, yeah, I noticed you got more faith than you used to have. You trust me more. You got more love than you used to have. You love people more. You're, you're not sort of singling out groups of people and saying, well, I don't love those people as much as I love. No, you've got love for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love your neighbor, all your neighbors as you love yourself how about ministry? Are you, do you have a ministry? Because I don't think ministry is something that um, those of us who stand on the platform have. I think every member of the body of Christ has ministry. What is your ministry? And are you further along with that? And what about your perseverance? Are you, are you holding on? He says, you're doing better now than you were at the first. I read about um, Pablo Casals, this um, world-famous cellist. Um, he was staying in a hotel where he was giving concerts and he was keeping all the other people in the hotel awake by practicing way into the night. 
and the clerk at the, at the front of the desk there at the hotel was getting complaints about it. So when he saw Mr. Casals go by, he said, look, um, I just got to say something. The other people who are staying here are complaining because you're always practicing. Look, you're 90 years old. I mean, why, why are you practicing all the time? You're, you're the best in the world. Why are you practicing? And Casals turned around and said, because I think I'm getting better. <laughs> I'm 90 years old, and I think I'm getting better. And here's, here's what I know. I know people in our church who are like that. I pray with a guy every Wednesday morning named Roger Duck. Anybody here, here know Roger Duck? Yeah, Roger and Livonia are amazing, amazing Christians. And I mean, he's been a missionary and he's been a pastor and he's been a counselor. But every Wednesday morning when I pray with him, I get the feeling that Roger's getting stronger in his love for God, in his trust in God. And he's like in his mid-80s now and he is absolutely running through the finish line. And he's a model for me and also for all of us because it's not enough just to start well. Look, this is what Paul said to the Philippians. He who began a good work in you is faithful and he's gonna finish what he started in you. And for God to finish what he starts in us, it would be good for us to cooperate in that effort and to be going forward. So the morning star empowers us to finish strongly so we can say with Paul to the Philippians, I've not arrived, I've not attained but, but um, I'm pressing toward the mark. And this one thing I do, I press toward the mark because I want to receive this, this high calling of God. I want to finish strong what God started in me. The second thing I think he says to us this morning is that this morning star, think about a bright light, what light does, it exposes. And he says, the morning star will expose your spiritual weakness, whatever's holding you back and keeping you from progressing in your spiritual walk with God. He will expose that and he'll give you time to correct that. He will help you do that. And so what he has against this church is that they tolerate Jezebel. Now Jezebel is a character in the Old Testament, the wife of Ahab who persecutes Elijah, who kills all of God's prophets, not a nice lady. For instance, in this room, we probably have people named Hannah. We probably have people named Elizabeth. I know there's somebody here named Naomi. There, there may be a Ruth. There may be an Anna. There are all kinds of girls' names in the Bibles that your parents chose to name you. But I'm guessing. Am I wrong? Correct me if I'm wrong. But there is not a single Jezebel in this room. Any Jezebels? Yeah, maybe not. Why not? Why doesn't anybody name their daughter Jezebel? Oh, Jezebel, when the baby's born. I'm so glad. No, why? Because she was not a good person in the Old Testament. Now, there's a person in the church, and I don't think her name is probably really Jezebel, but Jesus says she's a lot like Jezebel because she's all about immorality. She's all about idolatry, and she's teaching that you should um, continue in these things. And the problem in the church is they're so loving that they just say, yeah, well, we love her too. So if she wants to teach that, that's fine. And she's, and they're tolerating her bad teaching. Now I know in my lifetime, the meaning of the word tolerate has changed because tolerate used to be a, a sort of ambivalent thing, like not necessarily that great of a thing. Like, you know, I don't like that about him, but I'm going to tolerate it. But in our day, it's like, you don't want to be intolerant. You want to be tolerant because tolerance has been exalted. I don't know how, but it's sort of catapulted above all the other virtues. And it's like, if you're not tolerant, then you're a, a hater. 
And the one thing you don't want to be in our culture is a hater. And, and how do you become a hater? Well, if you disagree with anybody, then you're just being a hater. You know, I was talking with um, some of my, my um, nieces and nephews one time, and we were talking, and there was something we were talking about, a behavior that I think in the Bible is clearly wrong. And I said, you know, that's, that's look, we don't, hate, we don't hate people, but we can hate sin. And I said, yeah, that's, that's not right. And one of my nieces said, you got to stop drinking the haterade, Right? Because you're like, you're hating, on those, you're hating on those people who do that. I said, no, I'm not hating on any people, but I'm saying this behavior is not right. Well, the, ch- the church at Thyatira said, yeah, anything goes. You want to teach that it's okay to have immorality? That's fine. And I can't express to you how the world's perception of immorality has changed even in my lifetime. But like um, I read that in 1896, there was a movie that, that came out that was called The Kiss, and um, it, was, it was thought to be crazy immoral because two people kissed on the screen. The, the writers in that day said, somebody needs to take police action against that. That should never be seen on the screen. We're going, oh, that's, just, that's just way extreme. But I'll, I'll tell you where it is now. Harris Poll recently did a survey and said the average television watcher, I don't know if you're average, above average, or beneath average, but the average television watcher in our country in a single year sees um, sexual intimacy 14,000 times in a year, mostly between unmarried people, and usually commended as that's a good thing. And before long, it desensitizes us, and we begin to think the word immorality, the word in Greek is pornaya, gives us our word pornography, and it's, we're sort of the frog in the kettle. You know, if you put a frog in a kettle and turn up the heat really quickly and it starts to get really hot, the, the frog will just jump out. Because it knows I'm going to get boiled and that's not good. But if you put a frog in a kettle and just incrementally slowly turn it up, it never thinks it needs to jump out. It doesn't recognize the change around it. And in the end, it dies anyway. And at any point, it could have jumped out, but it just never thought that it was a big deal. And I think that's happened in our culture related to the issue of morality. So what used to be thought to be clearly wrong then became, well, it's sort of up to them. And before long, our talk show hosts in America were saying, well, if it's right for them, then it's right for them. Maybe it's wrong for you, but it's right for them. As though right and wrong were up for sort of a majority vote. Here's the deal. I mean, I remember back about the time that, that y'all were born and people were saying, but these are the 90s. So you know, things have changed morally. So we don't say that things that were wrong before are wrong because these are the 90s. And it occurred to me, it's been the 90s like like 20 times since Jesus was on this earth. The 90s, the 190s, the 290s, 390s, you got it, right? It's been the 90s many times. But truth has not changed in all that time. And whatever was wrong is wrong. And whatever is right is right. And wrong is wrong, even if all the world says it's right. You can have a vote and say that wrong is right. 96% say wrong is right. But that wouldn't make it right because it's still wrong. And the same is true of right, calling right wrong. The truth is, the truth stands. And what he says is, don't, don't tolerate that shift. And, and where this comes down for us is, um, our seniors especially, you're about to go off to college, and um, for, for um, 18 years of your life, your parents have sort of set rules and standards for you and said, this is the way it's, it's going to be. This is the way life is supposed to be. And suddenly you're going to have absolute freedom and the culture around you is going to say, yeah, well, I mean, I, that might have been wrong back then, but now you're, you're in college, so, so maybe it used to be wrong for you, but now you're in college, so maybe, maybe it's okay now. And what it comes to, um, 
Uh, a writer named David Haig has, has written a book where he, he talks about a, a guy um, who says to his, his student minister, look, um, immorality for me is inevitable. I'm going to sleep with people because I can't help myself. I just got to do that. And he said, okay, well, let me just test that and see really if, it, if it's inevitable. If I walked in the room when you were starting immorality with a girl and I pulled out my wallet and pulled out 10 $100 bills and said, I'll give you these if you stop, would you stop? He said, absolutely. He said, you would take the money. Yeah, he said, so really, really it's not inevitable because there is something you value more than immorality. And that is, you would value $1,000 more than an opportunity for immorality, right? And he said, yeah, I guess so. He said, well, then we just got to figure out what's more valuable than immorality. And the answer for the church in the first century at Thyatira and for Tallowood in the 21st century, the answer is what's more valuable than immorality? The answer is Jesus. That if we have a great enough love for him, then immorality will seem worthless by comparison. That we will trust in our love for him as greater than anything. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to choose not to compromise the way the first century church in Thyatira was. And just say, well, you know, I mean, it's okay for me to do this. No. Listen to the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God says it's wrong, then it's wrong. And if the Word of God says it's wrong, then it's wrong. And He invites us to repent of that. And here's, here's what I love about God. He gives them time. So you say, yeah, but I was involved in immorality once, and God didn't strike me with a lightning bolt, so it must be okay. Maybe God doesn't judge us immediately when we sin because he's giving us a chance to repent. It's in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Or do you despise the riches of his tolerance, kindness, and patience, not knowing that his kindness leads us to repentance? God's being kind to us because he's given us time to turn. But here's the deal. If we continue to trample on the laws of God and go, I'm just going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. My word to you is God is patient and he is kind and he loves you and he forgives you. But here's the deal. Jesus does not tolerate sin. Jesus does not tolerate sin. Jesus didn't come to make bad people a little bit better for a little while. Jesus came to make dead people live. And so we are alive to God and we are dead to sin. And the scriptures say we put off, we put off sin like you take off a, a, a dirty shirt after you play uh, acquire the tire. You, you put that off because you don't want to walk around in that the rest of the week. Why? Because you've had a shower now and you're clean. And Jesus makes us clean and why would we ever want to go back? I mean, if he's made you alive, why would you want to live in a cemetery and sleep in a coffin? He's brought you to life. He has more for us than we know. And here's what he says. Not all of you are falling for that. And that's a good thing. You think, well, what, what difference does it make if people just disagree? Well, on small matters of doctrine, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. There are a lot of things that are not life and death kinds of issues. But whether or not Jesus rose from the dead whether or not he calls us to salvation, whether or not he's the only way to salvation. Those are non-negotiable kinds of things. Melanie and I lived in a little town called Axtell early in our ministry. We were newlyweds. They built us a little house. It was just the two of us and our dog named Robbie. We named him for the youth minister. He was a basset hound and we lived in that house and then God gave us Graham and he lived in that house with us. And um, we loved the people there and we loved that church. And down the road, there was another church it was kind of up on a hill beside um, Trading House Lake. And 
Um, the people were there were a little bit different, and they worshiped on Saturdays instead of on Sundays. But, you know, that's, that's not a big deal, right? But there was a guy named Vernon who went to, to live there. He was a young guy, and um, Vernon had some different kinds of ideas. And he took the passage that Scott read last night, and he said, who is worthy to open the seventh seal? He said, I am. I'm worthy to open the seventh seal. And the people believed him. Not just like crazy people, but kids I knew, because I substitute taught at the school. There was a girl named Rachel. She was 14 years old, and I went to teach one day, and they said, Rachel married Vernon. I said, she's 14 years old. Yeah, but he said that God told him to marry her, and the people said, okay. Before long, he was saying, God told me to marry your wife. There was a Harvard-educated attorney in that church. He, he went to Harvard Law School, and when Vernon said, I think your wife is supposed to be my wife, he said, okay. Now, that's tolerance of bad teaching. Eventually, Vernon changed his name to David. David Koresh. David Koresh, who led a group of people in Waco, a cult group. I remember one time um, a man came by in our vacation Bible school and um, he saw me in my office. I was sitting in there at the end of vacation Bible school. He looked in and I said, hi. And he said, hi, do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? And I said, yeah, I believe Jesus is coming soon. He said, well, I'm David Jones. I'm the local postman. And I believe Jesus has already come. His name is David Koresh. He's up here at this little church at Mount Carmel. And if you really want to see Jesus, you need to come up there. Before long, they were digging up dead bodies and trying to raise them back to life. The grandson of the founder, George Roden, his grandson was named Will Roden. He was seven feet tall, 18 years old, came to our church one Sunday night. He said, you know, it's getting weird down there. I said, what do you mean it's getting weird? Because it's always been a little bit weird. He said, yeah, well, they're digging up dead bodies. Yeah, I said, that's weird. That's really weird. Before long the uh, government of the United States decided they had to do something about these people on that compound. And one, one Sunday morning, they stopped at a little store there in the little town of Elk. And they said, we don't know how to get to Mount Carmel. You'd think the government would have like maps, right? But we don't know how to get there. And David Jones, the postman, was sitting there. And when he heard them giving directions to Mount Carmel to these ATF people, alcohol, tobacco, firearms people, he got in his car and drove out to Mount Carmel and they picked up their guns and when the ATF officers got there, they started shooting them. It ended, this was um, before some of you can remember anything, it ended with the government trying to scare them out of there and uh, tear gas was set on fire. They say accidentally, I don't know. And all those people and all those kids that I taught at that school burned to death in that fire. So if you ever think, well, you know, it doesn't matter what people believe, really. I mean, anything goes. It's okay for it. Look, in that case, it caused people to die. And my word to you is what we believe really matters. And you'll know what you really believe by the way you behave. In fact, I think the only part of this book that we really believe is the part that we live. So if it says something's wrong, and then I say, well, I can do that anyway, then I don't really believe that part of the Bible. I mean, I could actually just kind of pull that part out because I'm not practicing that part. But the truth is, the Word of God calls us to believe and to behave in ways that show that we are followers of Jesus Christ so that we make progress. But not everybody in the church was going for that. And so he has a word for them. And here's his word to them. Hold on to the finish. Hold on to what you have. 
And what do they have? What they have is Jesus. And he says, look, in the end, if you overcome, I'm going to give you authority. And I'm going to give you the morning star. I'm going to give you me. And I'm going to be enough for you. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I come to die, that song says, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. So after Eric Little wins the Olympics, um, he has the chance to sort of be on tour and be a national hero in England and sort of retire for the rest of his life and make lots of money and be really famous and have people go, ooh and ah, you're the one who put his head back and won the 400 meters when that wasn't even your event. But when he got back, he said, I'm going to China. And he became a missionary in China. And when the Japanese invaded China in 1937, he had a chance to get out. But he said, I'm staying because I want to win these people to Jesus. I want them to know him as their personal Savior and Lord. Eventually, he's put into a prison camp. And he dies at the age of 43. And some people look at that and say, wow, what a waste of life. I mean, he could have died of old age if he just stayed in England. But the truth is, he was faithful to what God called him to do, and not just on the track, but in life. Eric Little finished strong. And my word to you this morning is, you have started really, really well this week. Finish strong. Only one life, it will soon be passed. And only what you do for Christ will last. Live for Him. You will never regret living your whole life for Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your power in this place. Thank You that You are more than enough for us. And help us, I pray, Lord, to finish what we've started. Lord, some of us this week came here and our hearts were absolutely turned against You. And now, Lord, we're starting to be open to the fact that You're real and that you're alive, and that you care about us. And God, I pray that we will, we will be running strong when we finish this week, Lord. And not just when we leave here, but Lord, when we go home, that there too, we will live for you, because it's worth it, Lord, to live for you. It's the only thing that's worth it. Help us to hold on to you. And thank you that you are holding on to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, power.